I'm going to start out today by reading a story uh, that I read, written by a man named Stuart Strockham Jr., um, and it started out with a question. Do any of you know the name of the inventor of dynamite? It might sound familiar once you hear it. It is Alfred Nobel. In 1867, Nobel, Alfred Nobel, who was a Swedish chemist, invented a new high explosive, which he named dynamite. He believed that this invention would make war so horrible that it would never happen again because it would become so awful, so horrible, that no one in their right mind would be willing to inflict that kind of terror on somebody else. Surprisingly, he was wrong. Perhaps if he were a good Christian, the writer says, with a thorough understanding of human depravity, he wouldn't have made that mistake. Instead of ending wars, dynamite made them more devastating and wide-ranging than it had ever been before. He was horrified, but also had no idea what to do. He also, it has to be said, made a fortune from the sales. And then something very interesting happened. One morning, around the turn of the century, he awoke to read and get this, his own obituary. It read, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. He died a very rich man. You see, Alfred Nobel had passed away the previous night, but the next morning his ghost was able to read the newspaper. Okay, that's not what happened. The newspaper had actually made a mistake. Alfred's older brother was the one who died. But as you can probably imagine, the obituary had a very profound effect on him. He realized he didn't want to be known primarily as the person who developed the most effective killing machine of his generation and amassed a fortune doing it. That sounds more like the villain to a story than the protagonist, right? So what did Alfred Nobel do? Well, he founded the Nobel Peace Prize an award for scientists and writers who foster peace. Nobel said every man ought to have a chance to correct his epitaph and midstream and write a new one. Epitaph means something by which a person will be remembered. What had happened? Alfred Nobel was given a chance to make a change. He was given the chance to make a big turn, repentance, in his life, to choose forces of good over evil. And ultimately, when he did pass away, he would be known not just for creating dynamite, but for creating the most well-known peace prize in the entire world. This story is called Alfred Nobel's Big Turn. Notice in the story, Nobel was given a chance to make a change in his life, essentially to repent for doing evil and choosing to do good instead. From a biblical perspective, repentance is one of the most important things a person can do in and throughout their lifetime. Repentance is at the heart of Jesus' ministry. Luke 5.32 says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he puts a high emphasis on it being done sooner rather than later by saying things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
It's Mark 1.15. The phrase at hand means close in time or about to happen. As one commentator put it, the kingdom is emphasized as having drawn near in the person of Jesus. The only appropriate response is repentance and faith. There is an urgency about the nearness of God's kingdom. Since it ushers in the end, it speaks of judgment. Repentance is the key to eternal life and is required for all people without exception. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in this case, all means all, all of the time. I want to look at a passage in Luke today that will provide us with some useful information regarding repentance and its importance. This passage contains some very interesting information involving people being killed and a parable taught by Jesus. Along the way, we'll answer some questions, extract some principles, and identify some useful and helpful applications for us. Open your Bibles up to chapter 13, starting with verses 1 through 5, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. There were present at that season some who told him, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice first that there are two examples of two different people groups being killed in two different ways. The first is a group of people from Galilee who were slaughtered. And the second group of people that dwelt in Jerusalem and were killed in an accident. In both cases, Jesus asked the question, do you think these people who died were the worst sinners of their people group? Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is one asked to make a point rather than to get an answer. Do you truly think these people died this way because they alone were not good people? It was obvious to Jesus that this is what they thought, which is why they brought it up in the first place regarding the Galileans who, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. The Galilean people were those that lived in Israel somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. Galileans were not really viewed as reputable people. They were undereducated troublemakers. Galilee <clears throat> was divided into an upper part and a lower part, which contained the capital city of Nazareth where Jesus was from. Remember when Jesus was gathering his disciples, he wanted to go to Galilee. And Philip had just told Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And in John 1:46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good 
come out of Nazareth, these people were not typically viewed in high regard. And for some reason, maybe because he was a tyrant or just a lunatic, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who everybody knows because he later condemns Jesus, which resulted in his death on the cross, had ordered the killing of a group of Galileans who were in Jerusalem worshiping. And their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. So they're in a temple, they're worshiping God, offering up their sacrifice to him, some type of animal, and they get massacred by government soldiers. And as they did, their blood was mixing with the blood of their offering, essentially creating an unclean sacrifice. Seems like a reasonable assumption to think that they must have upset God in some kind of special way to be slaughtered in this manner. And so they bring it up to Jesus while talking to him, essentially saying, do you, what do you have to say about this atrocity that has taken place? And Jesus responds to these people with that rhetorical question. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Do you think these people have done something to offend God that is worse than any other Galilean? I tell you no, Jesus says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice Jesus shifts the conversation from the tragedy of these Galileans to the necessity of repentance for everyone, lest you likewise perish. Rhetorical questions are are always pretty fun, used a lot. For example, when I have done something my wife doesn't like, she'll often let me know that. And I'll respond with things like, who cares? It's not even a big deal. Or when parents are talking to their children and their children don't seem to have the capacity for listening, we typically say something like, how many times do I have to tell you not to do that? We're not typically looking for an answer to those questions. In fact, that might get a kid in trouble. I mean, if, if one of my kids responded to me five more times, Dad, five more times you have to tell me that. That would probably be one of those whack moments. <laughs> Which would have likely been the problem with these folks Jesus was talking to. I mean, imagine had they answered. I mean, remember, they didn't really like the Galileans. Do you suppose these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Well, they sure are, Jesus. They sure are. Probably another whack moment. But no, Jesus already knows their hearts, right? And so to remove any doubt, he quickly gives them the answer. I'm telling you no. He says they are not worse sinners. Do you know what it would imply if these people were killed for that reason? that God acts out of spite. And we know that this isn't true. Psalm 31, 19 says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust you, in the presence of the sons of men. See, God is good, not spiteful. Next, Jesus himself brings up the second example, which was 18 people killed by a tower in Siloam. These people were from Jerusalem, and, and he asked the same question. Do you think that these were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? 
According to John MacArthur, Siloam was an area in the lower city of Jerusalem that contained this popular pool. Some towers guarded the aqueduct, and apparently at some point, one of these towers fell like during construction or something like that and killed these 18 people. But Jesus asked the question, do you think that they are worse sinners than all other men who dwell in Jerusalem? And notice, just as in the last example, Jesus' question is rhetorical. Again, meaning he's not looking for them to answer, but is making a point. And he answers for them immediately and says, I tell you no. No. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's not a lot of information regarding this particular incident, but it is clear that Jesus' point is the same as before, which is what you should be thinking about is not how these people died, but that you repent before you die. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Now these two stories bring up a lot of questions. Like, what is repentance? Most people will say something like, repentance means to turn from sin. Recognize something you are doing that is bad and stop doing it. And this is true, in general. But it means more than that. It means to change one's mind. Which then results in a change of action. Acts 2.38, then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge you are wrong regarding the Son of God first. Admit that He is the Lord, that He is the Savior, that He is the Messiah, the Christ. Accept His forgiveness Receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized. Repentance is simply to change your mind about your rejection of God. Jesus is not to be ignored, but adored. Because he is the Lord. See how I did that? But it does not stop there. Repentance becomes a lifelong endeavor that has no end while we live in this broken world. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And therefore, while we are in this sin-promoting world, we will need to repent often and as often as necessary. The famous Charles Spurgeon said, Repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks, a temporary penance to be got over as fast as possible. No, it is the grace of a lifetime, like faith itself. God's little children repent, and so do the young men and the fathers. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. What does true repentance look like? We've all made mistakes in life. 
Some of us have sinned repeatedly. Some of us are still sinning today despite our public acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and Savior. So what does true repentance even look like? What is the difference between repentance and saying I'm sorry? In general, being sorry means having feelings of distress for feeling regret. But the reality is that it does not necessarily require an understanding. For example, if I say something in this sermon that offends some of you and you text me later and you say, hey, I was offended, I could respond with sorry. And that would be that. I wouldn't even know how or why I offended you. Or in a less concerning way for your feelings, I might say, sorry, geez, I I didn't even think it was that big of a deal. Or sorry, you're so sensitive. Or sorry, it hurt your feelings. I was just joking. In truth, being sorry can sometimes have a very heartfelt meaning, such as when someone is suffering. You might say, I'm very sorry that you're going through that. Is there anything I can do to help you? Saying I'm sorry is in fact a good thing to do if you were to hurt somebody, um, if you want to sympathize with somebody. But it does not always produce a change in behavior or a, a change in direction. It's usually meant as a quick fix. I'm sorry I stepped on your toes. I remember when I joined the army, seems like forever ago, They sent me to South Carolina. Um, I was there, I think it was nine weeks at the time. They had these really cool obstacle courses that we got to go through. And there was this one in particular that had this huge uh, wall. I think they called it Victory Tower. And we used to get to rappel down it as training. Um, And it was pretty high. Um, But I'm not afraid of heights. And for me, it was a lot of fun. And so I was so excited. I got up there and hooked up, you know, all of my gear. And I threw myself over the edge But as I did, I looked at the terror that was in my drill sergeant's face as I did it because, see, he was responsible for my safety. And he hadn't had a chance to check my harness, check my gear to make sure everything was okay. And so when I threw myself over the edge, he kind of freaked out a little bit. And so when I saw his face, I realized what had happened. I said, I'm so sorry, drill sergeant. Expecting him to say no big deal, he didn't. In fact, he said, I know you're sorry, private. Get back up on the platform and do push-ups. You see, he freaked out, man. He was yelling, going crazy. But I realized that my sorry had no real good effect on that situation. The Apostle Paul helps us to understand repentance in his second letter to the Corinthians. Paul writes, these folks who are having lots of issues in their church, issues like false teachings, arguings, they're fighting about things. Um, and so he's very stern with them in a lot of cases. And in, and in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 13, Paul says this, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world 
produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul points out that the sorrow of the world produces death, but godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. And he clarifies this for us by giving us seven examples of true repentance. First, Paul says, what diligence it produced in you This is like the Alcoholics Anonymous first step, recognizing you have a problem. True repentance will provoke in you a sincere and intense conviction of your offense or offenses against God. Second, Paul says, what clearing of yourselves? True repentance means to become transparent regarding sin and removing it, not hiding it. It is always better to get it out in the open and to have somebody help hold you accountable. Third, Paul says, what indignation. True repentance means to demonstrate anger towards sin. To hate it because God hates it. Psalm 97.10, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Fourth, Paul says, what fear. True repentance means to feel unpleasant or afraid about sinning again. Fifth, what vehement desire. True repentance means to be passionate about being in a perfect relationship with God. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Sixth, what zeal. True repentance means to be enthusiastic in our pursuit of a godly life. And seventh, Paul says, what vindication. True repentance means having a strong desire to wrong our rights. We should always be ready to forgive others and to seek forgiveness when needed. Diligence, clearing, indignation, fear, vehement, zeal, and vindication are all true signs of repentance. In the first part of our passage, we see that Jesus has prioritized repentance over everything else regarding life and death. And now understanding what repentance is and what true repentance looks like, it's easy to see in the examples Jesus gave us regarding the death of the slaughtered Galileans and the crushed 18, that all people are sinners, not just a select group. 
And so as one Bible study commentator said, the question is not, why did these people die? But what right do you have to live? None of us is sinless. And so we had all better get prepared. And just to drive home the necessity of repentance, let me share with you an illustration I read about sin. Something to sort of help us visualize ourselves concerning our sin. I read that the first century Romans used to bind their prisoners face-to-face and hand-to-hand with a dead body until the living person choked to death from the stench of the corpse. Essentially, the living person would succumb to the sickness caused by the dead body until they were both dead. This literally is what living without Jesus means, being shackled to a corpse, which is our sinfulness. And only repentance can free a person from death. Because life and death cannot coexist for an unlimited amount of time. Jesus says not to worry about how or where people will die, but more importantly, what is going to happen when they die? The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher and Bible expositor, once said, the terrible, tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment and that to change the man, you have nothing to do but change his environment. This is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was in paradise man fell. There is no fixing yourself. It must be done by God. And that starts with repentance. The next logical question is, when? When should a person repent? Are there any timelines, or can we just do it when we get back from the kids' soccer game? Or after vacation? Or maybe just as soon as we get all those little sins in order, so that when we finally do do it, we just don't look that bad. When should repentance take place? To answer this question... We need to jump back into our passage, verses 6 through 9, where Jesus tells us a parable called the parable of the barren fig tree. Just to clarify, a parable is simply a story used to illustrate a moral lesson, which Jesus did often. And so after sharing these two examples of people dying and him saying repent or likewise die, the Bible says he also spoke this parable meaning Jesus also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, Let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And it bears fruit, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. This is an amazing story filled with symbolism, and it gives us a very easy 
to understand conclusion. Let's break it down. First, we have the people that are involved, which are the vineyard owner and the vineyard keeper. These two are the key persons in the story. And in a symbolic sense, they represent God the Father and God the Son. Second, we have a fig tree. And we have the soil surrounding the fig tree. These two aspects are also symbolic in that the tree represents the nation of Israel, but it also represents mankind as an individual. And the soil represents God's source of life. Notice that when the man had come to his vineyard seeking fruit, he found none, and he was not happy about it. He has provided a place for this tree to live, a place for this tree to grow. And he's provided this tree with a a vineyard keeper to make sure that it has all that it needs to flourish and to produce fruit as it was intended to do. And so this man tells the vineyard keeper to just cut it down. Because essentially a fruitless tree is a useless tree. And it's just really wasting space. But notice that the keeper makes an appeal for this tree and requests more time. So he can get it to produce fruit by digging around it, by, by fertilizing it. And he says, if it starts to produce fruit, good. And if it still doesn't produce fruit, then chop it down. The vineyard keeper has essentially bought a little bit more time for this tree. And he's going to do all he can to save it. But at the end of that time frame... That tree is going to be cut down if it does not produce fruit. Jesus is our keeper. And he's provided all the living water a person needs to bear fruit. Jesus has interceded on our behalf. And he has been granted more time. More time from a gracious God that we might repent before the end of our lives and finally produce the fruit we were intended to produce. The most important aspect of this story is that God has been incredibly patient with us and allowed us time to repent. However, that time, as indicated by the pleading of the keeper for just one more year, is limited time. It's borrowed time. It's not permanent. While we are all running around taking our kids to their overly committed extracurricular activities or sitting on the couch watching entire seasons of fantasy shows, Jesus is working hard digging around the tree and fertilizing the ground. Jesus is banging on the hearts of men, imploring them to repent because if we don't, we will be cut down. And we don't know exactly when that's going to be, but that borrowed time will expire today, tomorrow, or next week. But there is no need to gamble on making it to heaven before we die. The question was, when should we repent? And the answer is as fast as we can. Today. Right now. Because we are literally on borrowed time. So let's just recap this a little bit. And just pull out a couple of easy principles that we can take away from these verses. 
First, we have some people who come to Jesus and they share a story of some Galilean people being slaughtered while they were giving their sacrifice to God. And another incident with a group of 18 who were killed in a tragic incident involving a tower. And in both cases, Jesus makes the point that their death was not related to their sinfulness in terms of them being worse sinners than others, but instead points the listener to their need for repentance. Because repentance leads to salvation, which is the only way to avoid death, to avoid eternal death. So principle one is that repentance is the way that leads to salvation, which is everlasting life. This is an important principle because as I stated before, repentance means to change one's mind. If you never change your mind about God, then how can you accept his son? How can Jesus be your savior if you reject God? It is God's goodness and his grace that lead a person to repentance. But we have to take that step. We must repent. Romans 2, 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Forbearance and long-suffering. I can't imagine despising God's patience. God's goodness allows us to see our wrongs. And his goodness sent Jesus to save us. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our job is to repent. And then we see through the parable of the barren fig tree that the tree is required to bear fruit. And if it does not, it will be cut down. And so principle two is there is not an unlimited amount of time to realize that Jesus Christ is the one who can save us and repent and turn toward him. James 4.14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Life is short. Especially if you encounter tragedy or unexpected illnesses. There is no time to waste as it relates to us realizing who Jesus is. And what he is offering us. Simply put, we need to repent. And we need to repent today while we still have time. I don't know how many of you guys ever watch the news, especially lately. But if you do, you'll notice that there seems to be an unlimited amount of Pontius Pilots and falling towers throughout the world. Just destroying people. So how do we do it? How do we repent in simple terms? I'm going to give you five easy to understand things. And the first is for non-Christians. The other four are for Christians. And I know what you're thinking. Why are there more for Christians than non-Christians? I don't know why. It just is what it is. But number one, for those of you that don't know Jesus, 
If you have not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then you need to repent. You can set up an appointment with me or with Pastor Larry, and we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. And should you feel convicted, you can confess your sins to God through prayer and ask for forgiveness. And then you can move on to the next four steps with all the other Christians. Number two, if you are a Christian and you are doing something that God has said not to do, then you need to repent. You need to confess your sin to God through prayer and ask for forgiveness. Number three, if you are a Christian and you are not doing something God has said to do, then you need to repent. Confess your sin to God through prayer and ask for forgiveness. Number four, if you are a Christian and you are thinking about things that you should not be thinking about, then you need to repent. You need to confess your sin to God through prayer and ask for forgiveness. And number five, if you are a Christian and you are saying things that you shouldn't be saying, then you need to repent. Confess your sin to God through prayer and ask for forgiveness. Notice that in the examples I've given, repentance is essentially admitting to God that our actions, that our words, that our thoughts are wrong according to him. And that we recognize that we have violated his commands and his laws and we desire to change our direction. We desire to please him instead of ourselves. And another important aspect of this repentance is that we pray for each other. Well, if I'm going to pray for you and you're going to pray for me regarding sin, then that must mean that we know each other's sins. Meaning, we should confess to each other so that we can pray for each other and help each other. James 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We are not in this broken world all by ourselves. We have each other. And we should be willing to help each other in our struggles without judgment or condemnation. I'm sure everybody's familiar with the term Black Friday. But just in case you're not, this is typically the Friday after Thanksgiving in the United States when Americans lose their minds over shopping discounts, engineered to start the holiday spending spree. Essentially, retailers increase their discounts to get people motivated to shop, which for a lot of merchants, this holiday weekend is essential for their profit margins. But it, it creates a sort of shopping frenzy that brings out the worst in people. Supposedly, the name Black Friday originated from the number of traffic accidents and violence created by shoppers. But because it produces so much money, it sort of took on this positive connotation. Well, I read this story, some of you may remember from 2008, called The Walmart Black Friday Horror, where some 2,000 people stampeded into a Walmart 
in search of their discounted goods. A man who worked in the store named Demore, 34 years old, was knocked over and stepped on repeatedly by the mob, ultimately resulting in his death. Several other workers were injured as they tried to help their co-worker, including a pregnant woman of eight months. A tragic story that shows just how confused people are about what's important in life. A man lost his life because a group of people wanted to save 50 or $60. But as we think about that, and as we relate to the, the, the crazy stories we know, like this one or like the ones involving the Galileans or the 18 folks in Jerusalem, remember that the sins of those Americans are not greater than any other American. But unless we all repent, we too could perish likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your patience. We know that it will not last forever. And so I pray, Lord, that we would recognize our sins as evil and would repent from them. Help us, O oh Lord, to be like Jesus in all that we do. I pray for all those who don't know you, who don't know your love, who don't know your mercy, and I pray that they would see the truth. And that is that eternal life is only found in your son, Jesus. Please soften our hearts. Please help us to be honest about our sinful nature and our sinful desires and help us to turn from them. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.